Let's just uh, bow our hearts uh, and just pray as we move into this time of study together. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word never changes. Lord, that your word is complete. Father, we thank you that your word reveals to us our Savior, Jesus. That, Lord, he is the word made flesh. And as we study these things this morning, Lord, we pray that you speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that we will be encouraged. We pray that we will be strengthened in our walk. Uh, Lord, that we would remember, be reminded of this great hope that we have as believers. Uh, so, Lord, we commit to you this time now and just ask again your blessing as we, we break the bread of your word together. Lord, nourish our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, we are moving toward the end of the book of Hebrews. As I said earlier on in the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is that chapter that speaks of faith very much. Uh, and not just the kind of faith the world thinks of. The world thinks of faith as a, a kind of a hopeful belief that something might come to pass that, that we would like. That's not the way that scripture reveals faith. Faith, according to the Bible, uh, is the substance, is the evidence of things that we don't yet see. It's not uncertain. It's not just wishful thinking. Uh, the biblical faith that we see is a solid, assured confidence in what will be. And it's simply just trusting, not just faith for faith's sake, but it's faith in Jesus. And that's the real key. People speak to uh, speak of us very often as people of faith. People sometimes may say to us, you know, oh, I admire your faith or things like that. But truthfully, that just shows their misunderstanding of what faith is, because our faith is faith in Jesus Christ, is faith in a person, is faith in the fact that he will do what he has said he will do, uh, that he will be faithful and fulfill all the promises that we have in God's word. So let's just read. I'm going to read chapter 12, this, this chapter on hope. Um, that we're going to be looking at uh, the last chapter chapter 13 really is a chapter that really just talks again it breaks it down into love so we have faith hope love these last three chapters um, so i'm gonna read chapter 12 just from the the jewish new testament it's just a, a translation a paraphrase in a sense um, from a jewish mindset um, it might be helpful just the way some of these things are uh, explained to us so uh, follow through uh, in your bibles if you will so we read hebrews chapter 12 so then since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us too put aside every impediment, that is the sin, which easily hampers our forward movement, and keep running with endurance in the contest set before us, looking always to the initiator and the completer of that trusting, i.e. Yeshua who in exchange for obtaining the joy set before him endured execution on a cross as a criminal scorn the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of god yes think about him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you won't grow tired or become despondent you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in the contest against sin also have you forgotten the counsel which speaks with you as sons? My son, don't despise the discipline of Adonai or become despondent when he corrects you, for Adonai disciplines those he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Regard your endurance as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons, for what son goes undisciplined? By his father. All legitimate sons undergo discipline, so if you don't, you're not a legitimate son. 
Furthermore, we had physical fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. How much more should we submit to our spiritual father and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and only uh, as the best they could. But he disciplines us in a way that provides genuine benefit for us and enables us to share in his holiness. Now, all discipline, when it happens, does indeed seem painful and not enjoyable. But for those who have been trained by it, it later produces its peaceful fruit, which is righteousness. So strengthen your drooping arms and steady your tottering knees and make a level path for your feet. So that what has been injured will not get wrenched out of joint, but rather will be healed. Keep pursuing shalom with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the lord see to it that no one misses out on god's grace and no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and thus contaminates many and that no one is sexually immoral or godless like esau who in exchange for a single meal gave up his rights as the firstborn for you know that afterwards when he wanted to obtain his father's blessing he was rejected indeed even though he sought it with tears his change of heart was to no avail for you have not come to a, a tangible mountain to an ignited fire to darkness to murk to a whirlwind to the sound of a chauffeur to the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be given to them for they could not bear what was being commanded them if even a beast touches the mountain it is to be stoned to death and so terrifying was the sight that moses said i am quaking with dread on the contrary you have come to mount zion that is the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem and to myriads of angels in festive assembly to a community of the firstborn whose names have been recorded in heaven to a judge who is god of everyone to spirits of righteous people who have been brought to the goal to the mediator of a new covenant yeshua and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than that of abel See that you don't reject the one speaking, for if those did not escape who rejected when he gave divine warnings on earth, think how much less we will escape if we turn away from him when he warns from heaven. Even then his voice shook, but now he has made this promise. One more time, and I will shake not only the earth, but heaven too. Uh, and this phrase, one more time, makes clear that the things shaken are removed, since they are created things, so that the things not shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received an unshakable kingdom, let us have grace, through which we may offer service that will please God with reverence and fear. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so that's the, the chapter. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We jump straight in with that first uh, introductory word. We're, we're familiar, of course, with uh, wherefore. Whenever you see a wherefore, you have to ask what it's there for wherefore and it just draws us immediately back to the previous chapter to chapter 11 because of all the things it's just told us about these these 16 individuals that have been mentioned by name uh, and the other ones that have been alluded to as well that had great faith that went through incredible trials but they trusted god well it's because of that it says seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and the sin which do, does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, we have to answer this question of who are the witnesses or what are the, the, the what is the cloud of witnesses referred to here? 
you will find some commentators that will suggest uh, and they'll try and make the case that these witnesses are all those who have gone before us, those that are now in heaven, uh, those that are before the throne, including those that we've looked at in the previous chapter. Uh, those say those 16 or so that I mentioned by name. And they'll tell you that these uh, individuals are looking down on us from heaven. They're watching what we're doing. Uh, and that they're kind of observing. In this sense, some people argue that they're, they're kind of cheering us on as we run the race. Uh, they're like in a heavenly balcony watching the events on earth unfold. And as we walk with the Lord and so on, they're, they're cheering us on as we go. Now, there are many good scholars that will argue that position. Um, personally, I don't think that is what it's saying. And one of the simple reasons for that is when we get to heaven, our eyes are going to be transfixed upon Jesus. You know, when we see in scripture, those that have this, this opportunity to be caught up before the throne, you think of Paul, you think of Isaiah, you think of John, uh, you think of Daniel and these who, who get a glimpse of what heaven's like. Their focus is on the throne. It's on the lamb of God. It's on Jesus. And I don't think that those that have gone before us, you know, with all the majesty, the glory, the wonder of heaven are actually sitting there and watching things go on on earth. Uh, I don't think that they're they're watching every move we make in that sense. I think what this is referring to is saying since we have such a great example because of these saints he's just referred to in the previous chapter, we, we are surrounded by a great company of people that have run that race before us. We have this great, great witness. That, I believe, is exactly what this, this writer of the Hebrews is trying to communicate at this point. It's saying that, you know, we, we've got such a great testimony given to us by those who have already run this race. They are the cloud of witnesses. They're the ones who have uh, given us this kind of example to follow, We can whose faith we should follow, uh, we're also told. And I think this is what it's referring to, that we've got such a great um, heritage of those that have trusted the Lord, that have walked with the Lord. And, you know, we, we think, of course, of those in Scripture and the writer in the previous chapter has gone through many and cited them. And we looked at that last or a few weeks back now. But you think of those that we have the the privilege of uh, being named alongside, named as Christians, alongside the likes of Latimer and Ridley and uh, Whitfield and Wesley. You know, you think of all those great saints. Uh, you think of people like Tyndale and Wycliffe. You know, and there's so many through the ages, people like Spurgeon, people like Moody and so many others that, that maybe have been a blessing or an influence in your life as you've grown as believers. People like Oswald Chambers, you know, incredible people that just gave up everything for the work of the Lord, for the for the ministry the Lord had called them to. You know, they're on the same team that we are, to, to put it in a kind of modern vernacular. We're on the same side, you know, and when you're part of a team, you all have to pull together. You can see from my physique that sports are not my, my number one uh, pastime. But, you know, I, I have enough understanding of sport to know that when you play in a team, you have all got to work together. If one part of that team doesn't work together, it affects the whole. And, of course, this is really the argument that Paul uses in the New Testament many times about us being one body. As one body, we are to work together and every part is uh, supplying what the other part needs. Well, you know, we're on the team of these great saints that have gone before us. And that's the witness. You know, we're not in this on our own. We're told in Corinthians, Paul tells us that nobody struggles with a sin that is unique to them. We all struggle with the same kind of things. Now, different people have different challenges, and different problems and different sins that sometimes beset us and, and uh, stumble, cause us to stumble. 
But ultimately, we are all going through the same kind of challenges. We all have those same carnal uh, desires. Uh, we all have the same um, worldly reactions and responses to the situations that we're in. We're all drawn by the same kind of things. You know, so none of us are going through this alone. And yet we see a group of people that have gone before us, a multitude of people that have gone before us that have chosen to walk with the Lord. And I believe that this verse is simply saying, you know, we've got such a great example to follow this great cloud of witnesses all those that have been there and so because of that let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and the idea here in the in the greek of laying aside every weight and so on it's not just talking about the big sins the big challenges that we have it's the little things it's those little things that tie us down now if you've ever observed cyclists that do proper professional cycle racing you'll notice that they literally dispense of every ounce of weight they possibly can uh, you don't see them cycling with backpacks on and you know with watches and you know all sorts of other things everything even if it's a few grams they'll, they'll shed that weight because they know it will slow them down on the race uh, some of you may be familiar with Stuart Burgess, great believer and does a lot of uh, teaching on uh, creation and so on. He used to be part of uh, CSM based in Portsmouth. He's now with Answers in Genesis and does a lot of teaching for them. Uh, he designed a uh, revolutionary chain uh, and sprocket system um, that was used on the Olympic bikes. And the idea of this was to get it down to as, as little friction as possible so that it wouldn't impede the cyclists. And that's one of the reasons the British GB, the GB team, uh, the Olympics did really well in the, the cycling events because they had this technology and it was very, very kept, uh, kept under close guard because obviously it was a, a competitive advantage they had over others. But I just want to just put up on the screen. Hopefully you'll be able to see this in a second. It's just a picture there of just a balloon. Now, you know, that balloon is filled with, with hot air or with helium, whatever. And, that balloon ordinarily would float off into the sky, but it's held down. It's held down by what on their own are relatively small, insignificant bits of string, bits of rope. Each one bit of rope on its own wouldn't make that much difference, but combined, they have the effect of stopping that balloon lifting off and floating into the sky. Now, of course, in the example of this balloon, that's exactly what you want them to do. You don't want that balloon to float off, particularly if you've just paid your five pounds to have a little trip in the balloon to have a, a view over the area. I think this one's down in Bournemouth. Um, but, you know, sin is just like those little bits of rope, those little sins that we struggle with in life. Or we may not even think we struggle with those things that hold us down. And this is what the writers of the Hebrews say. Let us lay aside, literally cut the ties of those little sins, those little things that weigh us down, that stop us rising to that place that we should be. We're told that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Well, that's where we should be. But so often our focus, our attention is on the things of this earth, of this world. Now, Paul will tell us in Corinthians, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And we need to understand that there's a lot of things that we allow in our lives that we don't necessarily think of as sin, but really anything that keeps us from God, anything that would weigh us down to any degree, on its own, you may not think it's a problem, but combined, those things really can affect our walk with the Lord. And we're going to go on and look at the, the reality that Jesus is coming back. And as Jesus is returning, we want to be in a place where we're not held down by these things. I'm sure some of you have seen that uh, 
little uh, anecdote. If Jesus were to come to your house today, you know, and if, if Jesus were to come to your house today, you know, what would you do before you let him in the front door? You know, what kind of things would you have to tidy away or hide away in cupboards? You know, what about some of the, the films that maybe you watch or some of the things you, you, you kind of spend your time doing, you know, your hobbies and pursuits? Again, none of those things may be necessarily sinful, but you need to be honest and ask yourself because the, the writer of the Hebrews is challenging us and saying, you know, let, let's lay aside those things because the problem is sin so easily besets us. And what may start as something very innocuous in our own minds can lead on to something that could be far more dangerous. It could be something that truly separates us from our relationship with God. It can be a, a something that uh, competes for our time that we would otherwise devote and give to God. So hopefully that kind of balloon analogy is helpful to think of those little things and combined they can cause a real problem to our spiritual growth. We're going to talk a bit more about this as we go on. But we go on in the, in the verse and then we're told, so let us run with patience. You know, the idea is that we've got to endure this. It's not something that's going to be over with in a few days or a few hours. You know, we need to keep on keeping on. We've got to run. And, and you know, somebody who is an athlete, you know, you think of the Olympic athletes. Um, and again, I don't, I don't, clearly I don't speak from experience and physical fitness. Um, but in terms of those athletes that train, you think of people like Jessica Ennis and some of those other great athletes that we've been familiar with over recent years. You know, the amount of effort and training you know, or if you're into uh, Formula One, you think of someone like Lewis Hamilton and the the, the strict regime uh, that he has to stick to. Uh, once again, with Formula One cars, they can't take on any extra weight and he has to control his own diet so that he isn't adding a few extra grams to the weight of the car and so on. You know, because we're told us we should run with patience. And this, this is going to be an effort as we endure with this. And it's the race that's set before us. And it is, we are in this, this race to the finish line and we don't want to get bogged down. We don't want to be caught up with the things of this life. Why? Because we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The idea here is that we should be looking and continually looking, forsaking everything else. That's exactly what the writer is saying. That's what the Greek implies here. That as we look to Jesus, we're, we're totally taking our eyes off everything of this world. That great hymn we mentioned it the other week, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. I'm sure as, as believers, you've come to that place where you've seen uh, in your own life uh, situations where things that you like, things you once enjoyed as you've grown in grace, lose their appeal. Now, once again, they may not be sinful things as we would perceive them, but they may just be those little ties on that balloon. And as we look to Jesus, well, guess what? The things of this world lose their appeal. Why? Because we start to think spiritually and not naturally, not carnally. Okay, so we're to look to Jesus and we're told that he's the author of our faith. You know, this wasn't your great idea. It, this wasn't something that we thought, you know, actually, you know what, this is a great thing we can do. No, Jesus came and found us. You know, we've been invited into his family. The work was accomplished by him. You know, we were dead in trespasses and sins, which is what Paul tells us uh, in the book of Ephesians. You know, we were outcasts. We were, we were aliens from, we're told, the commonwealth of Israel, from the blessings that God had promised through Abraham for those who walked with faith. You know, we're to look to Jesus, the author. He's the one that started it. And the finisher. 
Now notice this, because this is so important, because this is the, the challenge that Paul gives us in the book of Galatians. He speaks to the Galatians and says, you know, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? That you know that you think, having begun in the spirit, that you can maybe be made perfect in the flesh. Well, no, Jesus not only is the author of our faith, he's also the one to complete it. And we have to learn the great challenge for us as believers to walk in grace. That's the whole theme of the New Testament, in a sense, is learning to walk in that grace each day, knowing that he is doing that work. At the end of the book of Acts, we find there that this work of sanctification, that's setting us apart for God. So we're saved by God's grace. He starts the whole process for us. But the work of sanctification, setting us apart, is also a work of grace, is that which Jesus accomplishes in us. He's begun the work and we're told that he will complete it. He'll go on to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we're to look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. And we're told who for the joy that was set before him. So this now is a comparison that's given. So think of Jesus. Think all that he endured. Because we're told he endured the cross, despising the shame, of course. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be worried and faint in your mind. So the example we given is probably the greatest of all, that Jesus faced a challenge greater than any one of us will ever face. Jesus, we're going to see in a moment, resisted to the point of shedding blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus sweat those great drops of blood. It's a medical condition, uh, condition uh, hemodidrosis. Uh, it's the idea that you literally get to the point where under great duress and stress, you're actually, your capillary is breaking. You can actually start sweating blood. And this is what happened to Jesus in the garden. The duress he was under, knowing what he was about to face. Now, that's not the, the, the mockery and the scourging by the Romans. That, of course, was was in a sense, fearful enough to face. But that wasn't what really uh, brought that anguish upon Jesus' heart. It was knowing that he was going to take upon himself all the sins of the world. He who knew no sin became sin. Every wicked, lustful thought, every murderous, hateful thought, every ounce of bitterness that's in the world, everything that's ungodly, everything that's unholy, all the, the filth and so on of the world was all laid upon Jesus. And, and that was what Jesus was so in, in anguish about in the garden, knowing that he was going to bear this, this absolute filth on behalf of humanity. And knowing that as a result of that, that communion that he'd known with his father from the foundation of the world was going to be broken on account of us. You see, Jesus was in our place. He was paying the price of our sin. And so the judgment had to be full. It had to be complete. And he knew exactly what he was facing. And so this example that's given to us here, you know, so we're being encouraged to, to run this race, to, to cut those ties, everything to this world that, that would hold us and to look unto Jesus. Let me just add one little challenge in there. Think about what you spend most of your time doing. Can you honestly say that it is based on godly pursuits, either fellowshipping, or reading the Bible, or praying, or worshipping, you know, is it any of those things? You know, if the things of God combined are the most important in your life, then you are growing and maturing and doing well as a believer. But if you find that you're sowing to the flesh more than you're sowing to the spirit, recognize that the Bible is very clear, you will reap corruption, it will affect you, it will impact you. A lot of Christians 
have issues with depression, have issues with anxiety. Why is that? Well, because we take our eyes off Jesus. And it's as simple as that. It's the same as Peter on the water as he's walking to Jesus. Well, what's the challenge? Well, the moment he takes his eyes off Jesus, he reckons with the waves and the storms around him, which are very real. And he starts noticing them. And of course, what happens? Well, he starts to sink immediately. And the same for us. When we start to think about all those challenges and problems, if we're not focusing on Jesus, we'll go down. And Jesus, again, endured all these things for us. He endured it. And we're told just as Jesus, consider him, consider what he's done. Think about the great sacrifice he paid for us. And now think about what he's asking you to do. You know, for, for most of us, we haven't been called to go to some remote country and preach to some indigenous tribe who don't know the gospel and don't speak our language. I mean, there have been many believers that have done that kind of stuff. But for us, he's not calling us to do that. I remember some years ago when I was teaching down at Paul in Dorset, I was teaching once a month down there, uh, the fellowship we, we kind of uh, started for just a, a bunch of Christians who loved the Lord and just weren't getting teaching elsewhere. And they wanted to, to really uh, have some, some godly biblical teaching. And I was traveling down from Deal down to Paul. Once a month, I was traveling down after the Sunday service in Deal. I'd pack up all the gear, my guitar and my bits and pieces and mic stands and microphones and amplifiers and speakers, load it all into the car. Say goodbye to, to Joy um, and the girls as they were a meter, a mile and a meter, certainly at that point. Uh, and I drive off down to Paul. It was about a three hour, three and a half hour trip. I'd get there, I'd set all the equipment up on my own. I'd then welcome people as arriving, lead the worship, do the teaching. And then obviously after that, we'd have time of fellowship together. Then I had to pack all the gear away, load it back in the car. Normally one or two people there help me load up. And then I'd drive home again, three and a half hours or so home uh, and get home typically about one o'clock in the morning. And then at the time working in London, I was getting up just after five to get to work in London. And people used to say to me, Barry, you're crazy. You're mad. Why do you do it? It's too much. And I used to think, you know, well, what did Paul go through? I mean, we're in the passage here. We've been told to consider Jesus, but just consider Paul. Well, Paul walked pretty much everywhere he went. He didn't have an air-conditioned car like I had. He didn't have the, the comfort of a, of a nice, comfy seat in the car to sit in. He didn't have the opportunity to listen to great praise and worship music on the journey. Or on the way back, I used to very often uh, chat to Joy on the phone so that we could you know, partly keep me awake on my journey. But it was just a nice time to be able to talk. So I talked to Joy on the phone a lot of the journey home. Well, Paul never had that kind of opportunity. Paul was going into towns where people were hostile. Well, I was going into a church where people were welcoming. Paul was beginning stoned and dragged out of the city. I went, that never happened to me. And people would say, you know, oh, Barry, you know, do you think you're overdoing it? And I'm thinking, hang on, this is all relative. Because when you think of what people like Paul did for the sake of the gospel, what I was doing really was nothing. It was a pleasure. And I loved doing it. I loved the opportunity to praise the Lord in, in the congregation of the saints. I love the opportunity to teach his word. It's such a blessing. It's such an encouragement. As most of you will know, if you've, if you've ever taught anybody, whatever level of teaching that is, you know, if you're a parent teaching a child, if it's teaching a group of people, you know, whatever that is, when you teach others, it's such a great blessing to you. You learn more than you can ever possibly give. And so, you know, we have to put this in into context. But now we go back to the, the considering Jesus again. Look at all he endured for us. Look at what he went through. And now look at what he's asking you to do. He's asking you to walk with him by the grace that he provides in the strength that he provides with the hope that he has promised, with the eternity that is secure. 
with a great company of believers around us, with those that have gone before, those we walk with right now, and he's saying, walk with me. Really? Is that so hard? That, that's the challenge. And, and when we look at it in that context, really, it should be an absolute pleasure and a joy to cast off those cords that are binding us down, the holdings down, those things of this world. And we read in verse 4, you know, you've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now, this is not to make light of the challenges we go through, because we do go through some very hard challenges. There are times when we go through health issues or emotional challenges that are difficult. But that's where we have each other. That's why the Lord has placed us into a body that can support and encourage. When one part of the body is struggling, the other parts of the body compensate. And that's exactly how it should be in the church. And, and we've not resisted to, to that point. We've never got to the point that Jesus got to, and yet he endured it for us. And we're asked to do the same because of who he is and because of that which is ahead. And we go to verse 5. And you, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. Now we're going to be quoting from Proverbs. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Okay, so the writer of the Hebrews is saying, look, you know, you've got to follow Jesus, follow the example that he set of resisting sin, of, of seeking God the Father, of having that relationship with him. You know, and, and by the way, have you forgotten that God disciplines you? And why does he discipline you? To help you grow in grace. Verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Look, a godly father will correct us and we're going to see this. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? Uh, go on verse 10. For they verily, this is talking about our earthly fathers, our, our parents, for they verily for a, few, uh, for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Okay, let's just pause for a second again. So what we're told here is that we've had earthly parents. Those parents have disciplined us. I certainly remember my mum and dad disciplining me at times. You know, and more often than not, it was mum that would do the, the, the nipping at the heels, the correcting and so on. But every now and again, dad would step in. You know, it's the same here in, in the family. You know, on a daily basis, Joy's looking after the girls and she's disciplining them. She's teaching them and correcting them. But there are times and, you know, back in the day when I used to go out to work before we got into lockdown and I used to come home. Sometimes I would get you need to speak to and there would be a name following that. Uh, and I knew immediately that somebody had done something they shouldn't have done. And now I have to be dad. I have to step into that role of being the one who brings discipline. And, you know, part of it is, is a, as we're told there, we, as earthly fathers, we do it for uh, our own profit. In other words, we're doing it because we're aware of our own reputation. And we don't want our children going out in public uh, and being an embarrassment or doing things that would discredit the family. Uh, my mum, and I do the same with my girls now, but my mum always used to say to me when I was going out, she said, you know, don't let the name of the Lord or the name of Forder down. It was just something that just got drilled into me that wherever I was, I was representing my family and I was also representing God. And it's the same thing that we discipline our children because we want to 
have them be good examples of our family. It's a lovely thing, isn't it? When as a parent, somebody comes up to you and says, oh, your children are so well behaved. I mean, hypothetically, imagine that could happen. You know, um, and you know, that's the, the idea that's being put across here. We're, we're then told in verse 10, but God does it, okay, for our profit. God's not doing it in a sense just for his own reputation. God's not worried about, in a sense, the uh, the image that we portray specifically in in this context. Of course, we are to be ambassadors and so on. But God's the chasing that God brings is because He loves us and He wants the best for us. Now, of course, there is an element of that, as any earthly parent knows, when you're disciplining your children, you want them to to be good, to behave, because you want them to understand how they should act and interact and react in situations, and you want them to have a blessed and prosperous life. And that's one of the reasons we do uh, that discipline. They have to understand the rights and wrongs. Okay, so, yeah. And that chastening, as we're told, it's not pleasant at the time. And as believers, we go through that chastening where the Lord sometimes puts us through things we don't enjoy. But we have to go through these things. Sometimes we have to go through challenges that we really didn't anticipate and we weren't expecting. You know, and that can be sometimes with our, our finances, with our jobs. It can be in relationships. It can be in all sorts of areas of our lives. And God sometimes allows that chasing to come to, to remind us of our need for him and our need to obey him. You see, once again, we talk so often in our culture about success. But really, for Christian, the mark of success is obedience. And God is calling us to obey him. We've seen through this wonderful book of Hebrews already so often how God uh, just underlines the need for us to obey him. The, the the whole issue again with the going into the land of Canaan or the, the, the 12 spies and the, the 12, 10 that rejected and Joshua and Caleb who said, let's go. The issue was one of trust. It was one of obedience. That's what God is calling us to. That message throughout this book has been consistent, that God is calling us to obey him. Well, verse 11 carries on. It says, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, this is picking up the theme very much that we saw back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, that challenging chapter of the book of Hebrews, uh, you know, we, we went through it in detail, but notice that the, the, the outcome of that is those that are growing, those who are saved, should be bearing fruit. So we have the two examples of a ground that is cursed, that is not bearing fruit, and a ground that is bearing fruit. And that's how we should be as believers. You know, and we're told again that the chastening we have that God allows in our lives is that kind of pruning idea that we see in John's gospel as well. Jesus spoke about, you know, branches being pruned that it may bear more fruit. Well, that's that's the same thing. You know, we're pruned. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's not always comfortable. But the idea is that we're pruned, that we would bear more fruit for the Lord. OK, uh, and again, we just carry on because it says uh, that the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, so because of that, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know, uh, this is just another great uh, exhortation that we have here. Uh, uh, you know, we've we got a couple of references again for Old, Old Testament scriptures uh, that are given to us here. Uh, in verse 12, you've got a reference back uh, to um, where were we? Um, I believe it's uh, one of them a reference to to Job and so on. You know, uh, again, lift up the hands of shame. It's just saying, Ron Matson used to say, put your big boy trousers on. I used to love that kind of expression. But it's kind of pick yourself up, strengthen yourself. 
Lift up the hands. Which hand, don't don't be all melancholy and you know I can't do this. It's too hard, or I don't like it when God chases me, or go into that sulk. You know, I mean, hypothetically, I guess as parents, some of you may have had a situation where you've disciplined a child and they may have sulked. Uh, just just try and imagine it if you, you've not had the real experience of that. Um, you know, I, I could probably share some experiences where, where I've seen those things. Um, but children sometimes, they don't like it. If they're told off, if they're corrected, they sulk because they don't like it. it it's, it's offended them. But, you know, this is what this is saying to us. Don't sulk. If God chastens you, if God corrects you, if you go through a difficult time and God is teaching you lessons, don't sulk. Just strengthen yourself. Just, just re, re, trust in the Lord. And then it goes on and says, verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet. It's just a simple admonition. But why would we want to make a difficult path? Now, let me tell you a little story about yesterday. Yesterday, I said to the girls, let's go uh, for a walk. Uh, Mummy had some, some work to do at home. Uh, so I said, let's, let's go out, give Mummy some time uh, to get on with the things that she was doing. And so we went for a walk just to get some exercise. We've been obviously cooped up all week. Um, so under the government guidelines, we know we're allowed to do a little bit of exercise. So we went for a walk uh, across some fields uh, and we saw some lovely uh, highland cattle. And we kind of walked through the middle of them. And at one point, they all kind of stopped and stared at us, which was a little bit concerning. Um, but then we got past those. It was okay. We're walking down this this field. Uh, so kind of the, the top, the north end of, of Havant and the fields that are there. And as we're walking now, it suddenly started to get a bit boggy uh underfoot so i said okay let's not carry on that route uh let's cut across the field and try and pick up the other path the other side where we were heading well as we did it was okay to start with and then the grass got longer and it was more uneven and then there was little um uh, spongy parts of soil that were quite uh sodden and it got worse and worse and worse uh we had a, a, a buggy that we were carrying we had sharia with us uh marla was fantastic carrying her Mita had a scooter with her as well um yeah and we were trying to get across this field it was not easy and, and the girls got to the point of saying daddy we don't want to do this again you know and it was clearly one of those examples of it daddy thought it was a great idea it was going to be fun and maybe if it had been boys that have loved it girls didn't enjoy it so much um you can speak to them they'll tell you their own experience their own uh, view of the the, the the little trip we had um but this verse is saying Make straight paths for your feet. Now, I can guarantee you, if you ask my girls about our experience yesterday, they'd have much preferred that we'd have walked on a straight path. And I made it really difficult for us. It wasn't actually, in the end, it wasn't a lot of fun. I mean, it kind of was. We looked back and we laughed. But in our own lives as believers, we, we do the same thing. We put ourselves in situations. We go down paths that are not the best for us. We're going to have paths that actually make it difficult for us to walk. And often that will come out of our times of being grumpy with God. God will chasten us or discipline us. We don't like it. So we get grumpy. And what we end up doing is going down a difficult path. It's hard to walk. It becomes uncomfortable. Well, this is what it's saying. Make straight paths for your feet. Don't make it hard. Don't allow things in your life that are going to be a challenge to your spiritual walk. Let me put it that way. Let me say it again. Don't allow things in your life that are going to be a challenge to your spiritual walk. However great it may seem at the time, think about the outcome. Think about where it's leading. Think about what's going to happen. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. And what it's saying is, you know, we don't want to be in a position that we are turned off of the right path. 
we don't want to be in a position where we turn out of the way in which we should be walking you you, you know my love for psalm 119 you know blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the lord blessed are they that keep his testimonies that seek him with a whole heart well it speaks about walking in the way and that's exactly how we should be walking that you know we, we don't want to be walking in a path that's hard uh, but again but let it rather be healed you know we should be in a, a place that is not going to cripple us spiritually now verse 14 follow peace with all men well this is the same idea why would we be in a situation where we are not at peace with other people why would we allow bitterness or resentment or whatever that would create a barrier because that isn't going to help our walk is it follow peace with all men and holiness what a key that is if we are following peace and following holiness we're not going to be going very far wrong and it says without which no man shall see the lord now there's two uh, ways you can see this and i think both are applicable because if we are not following peace and if we are not seeking after holiness well we're going to be a, a, a an immature at best or, or sometimes a bad witness other people will not see the lord in us if we are not following peace and if we are not walking in holiness but the other element of that is you know what you're going to struggle personally to see the lord you will struggle to see the lord if you are not following peace if you are not walking in holiness if you are not making your path straight if you are getting grumpy because god disciplines or chastens you well then you're going to find it a challenge and you won't see the lord verse 15 carries on looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of god lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled bitterness is such a, a problem uh and sometimes you know we have situations where we see other believers prospering we see other believers doing things that maybe we thought we'd like to do or should be able to do and we don't seem to be able to well it's saying just because god shows grace to others and to us you know we shouldn't let those things be become uh, a cause for bitterness let me just give you an example if i may from matthew chapter 20 this is just a, a classic situation where the grace of god which we spoke spoken of in this verse can lead to a root of bitterness let me just read to you from matthew 20 for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard and when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day he sent them into his vineyard and when he went out uh, about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them ye uh, go ye also into the vineyard and whatever is right i will give you and they went their way and again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them why stand ye here all the day idle and they said unto him because no man has hired us and he said unto them go you also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right that shall you receive so when even was come the lord of the vineyard said unto his steward call the laborers and give them their hire beginning from the last unto the first and when he came uh, and when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour they received every man a penny but when the first came they supposed that they should receive more and they likewise received every man a penny and when they had received it they murmured against the good man of the house you see he's showing grace but they murmur against him there's this bitterness creeping in saying these last have wrought but one hour and uh, thou hast made them equal unto us which have borne the burden of the heat of the day but he answered one of them and said friend i do thee no wrong did thou not agree with me for a penny 
take that is thine and go thy way and i'll give it unto this last even as unto thee is it not lawful for me to do what i will with my own is thine eye evil because i am good so the last shall be first and the first last for many be called but few chosen you, you know the scripture you know uh, the example that's set there well you know it's the same thing as we've been told here in hebrews the Sometimes we see others that are blessed, that are growing in grace, that seem everything seems to be right for them. You know, it's so easy to look at them and bitterness can creep in. And that kind of, well, that's not fair. Why me? You know, we, we see it sometimes with children. Uh, you chasten a child, you tell a child off. And what do they want to do? The first thing they'll tell you, they suddenly become experts about their siblings. You know, they'll tell you, well, so-and-so did that. And rather than accepting what you're saying to them, then they'll immediately say, but they got away with this or they did that or she said that. Again, hypothetically, I'm just, you know, imagine these things could have take place in your family. Um, you know, and that's the, the problem. We sometimes want to, to, to divert the attention onto someone else and we become bitter that we are the one being chased and we're the one that's being addressed. Well, look, go back to what we said a moment ago. God is doing this because he loves us. And if we were not his children, he wouldn't do it. But because we are his children, God brings this discipline. And then we have this example. Verse 16, lest there be any fornicator. You see, this is another problem that we have when sometimes God disciplines us that we immediately revert to pleasing the flesh. Because, you know, we are people that like to be satisfied in all sorts of different ways. Okay, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And if we're not satisfied spiritually, we will default to a not a good place that we will seek that satisfaction in another way in another place now ultimately we should be looking to be content spiritually you know and paul certainly makes a point he'd learn in all circumstances to be content and that's not just you know okay i'm happy with what i've got my provisions his, his, his relationship with god is the, the fundamental part of that that whole equation there Okay, so you go on to speaking about Esau. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. This is the problem. You see, he, he, he just purely resorted to the fleshly things and so on. Ends up selling his birthright, had no regard for that which was to come. No regard for his inheritance. And verse 17 says, For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place of repentance now this again links us back to chapter six and what the writer to the hebrews said there about the the danger of losing the gift of repentance okay and we can come to that place we talked about that review that session if you want to chapter six when we studied it they uh, you know but esau found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears i mean he, boy was he upset he, he recognized he'd lost out but you know he wasn't prepared to show that regard to his birthright he, he, he wanted the blessing but he didn't want the commitment he wanted the blessing of all that was going to go along with the inheritance but he wasn't prepared to take the responsibility to step up and so on verse 18 says for you are not come now we're going to get to a change of theme but the same idea for you are not come unto the mount that may be touched and that burned with fire nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Of course, he's speaking about the situation at Mount Sinai. When the children of Israel had left Egypt, 
They'd wandered for a little while, just a few months through the desert, and they'd end up at this place uh, in Sinai. Let me just take you through, uh, if I can, on the screen, hopefully in a second, you'll see there, that is Mount Sinai, the tallest peak there is Jabal el-Laws. It's in Saudi Arabia. That's exactly where the Bible says. That's where Paul tells us this mountain is. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, that is something that has uh, been passed down to us by tradition, uh, unhelpfully. Uh, it was uh, Helena, uh, the mother of Constantine, that went out and she found a mountain and said, well, that'll do. I'll call it Sinai. And everybody went, oh, okay. And then from that point on, a monastery's been built at the top of it and so on. It's totally in the wrong place. Uh, that's not where Sinai really is. Let me just give you a very quick uh, refresh of this, because when the children of Israel left Goshen in the land of Egypt, they immediately went along the way of the Philistines. Now, remember that God had already told Moses to bring the children of Israel back to the mountain on which he'd seen the burning bush. That mountain was in Midian, because that's where Moses had been with his father-in-law tending sheep. It goes to the backside of the, the desert, this area of Midian. And so Moses was going to go the quickest, shortest route, which is the way of the Philistines. It was a trade route in that day. He was going to go across and then drop down, down to Midian. But of course, God tells them to turn off into the desert, which is exactly what they do. Now, the Egyptians think this is great because they now think they're entrapped. There's no way out for them. They're caught in this situation. They end up in this place initially referred to as Etham. Uh, it comes from the, the same word as Edom, but it means red. And why is that? Well, because the rocks in this area are all reddish in color. It's why that branch you can see of water on the right-hand side is called uh, the Red Sea. In fact, the whole of that area uh, is the Red Sea. And this is, of course, where they, they cross over. When eventually they cross over the land, they wander through. They come to this place of Rephidim. This is just an aerial uh, picture of the area. You can see there's a ridge system running through. Um, they initially go back to the, the beach after they've crossed the, the um Red Sea, and they find all the um, weapons and so on of the Israelites, of the, sorry, the Egyptians have been washed up, and they get those, they head all the way through, as you can see, to this place of Rephidim. When they get to Rephidim, I'm going to zoom in on this area, okay, you can see this little area, this encampment, I'm going to zoom in again, hopefully you can see this, this will come up on your screen, uh, and they get to this area, zoom into that area, now there hopefully you can see there's a slightly dark shadow right in the center of that circle, well that's an area, we we'll zoom in, you can see that shadow again. All right, this place here, you can actually see it on Google Earth and you can, you know, various ways you can see this. There's a massive rock, really tall rock, just as is described in uh, the book of Exodus and so on, uh, of where the children of Israel came and there was, they were complaining they had no water. Moses was told to strike the rock. And as we look at this rock, uh, there's the scriptures, I'll leave it to you. I'm not going to read them now for time, but Exodus 17 gives you the detail of this. Uh, but we find this rock was struck by Moses and it produced a huge quantity of water, enough for all the people. Well, this, uh, again, just, just I believe this is the very rock. Uh, there's huge evidence of erosion in a place here where there's hardly any rainfall uh, through the course of a normal year. Again, you can see the pictures there at the base of this rock. Clearly, it's been split from the top. Uh, about 200 yards from that, there's an altar where Exodus 17:15 tells us that Moses had built this altar at this point. Uh, so exactly as the Bible says, we find. And then they traveled round from Rephidim all the way round to this camp that they set up, about a mile wide area here. Enough clearly for all the children of Israel uh, to spend their time. And there's again, just a picture of this whole area, clear encampment area. You can see that blackened mountain over the top of the left hand side there. Uh, and as we go in, there's loads of other things here, archaeological sites. Uh, you can see um, that's just a, an artist's rendering of what the area may have looked like. There's various things there, including this altar of Moses, as referred to. 
uh, where they would have used it for sacrifice and so on. Uh, this is actually a diagram from the uh, Saudi Arabian Department of Archaeology showing that this uh, ancient ash pit existed there. Clearly it was used for sacrifice of animals and so on. Around the base of this mountain there's these 12 pillars that are there. Uh, and then you have what seems to be the altar of the golden calf. Just a, a stone's throw, literally, from the base of the mountain. There's this area here. And you can see a picture of this uh, man-made crop of rocks. Uh, it's fenced off by the Saudi government. You can't get into it. On the side of it, there's pictures of the Apis bull, the bull that was worshipped in Egypt, the very bull they were trying to recreate, and so on. But then we get to this uh, verse 18 of Exodus 19. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked, quaked greatly. Now, this is what we're being told. That when the children of Israel were here, they were terrified as the Lord came down on top of this mountain. By the way, um, um, Ron Matson uh, told me personally, he used to be the pastor of Calvary Portsmouth, that uh, Bob Conyuk had been to this mountain. He got a sample of this rock from the top of the mountain, took it back to America, gave it to the laboratory and said, could you tell me what this is? Um, and they came back and said, well, it's granite, but it's superheated granite. And they said, where did you get it? Well, obviously... It came from here. The top of the mountain is not volcanic rock, but clearly the top of this mountain has been burnt. Well, this is what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us about. This incredible place that people were terrified as the Lord again just came down on top of the mountain. But then we go on verse 22. It says, but you are come unto the Mount Zion. Okay, this is the heavenly. And unto the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. Now we're getting a comparison. You think about Mount Sinai and all of that. And he's saying, well, now we'll compare it to the real thing. To verse 23, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all men and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the one that drew up the agreement effectively, the one that, that put this thing in place, and to the blood of sprinkling, well, Jesus' blood, of course, was sprinkled. We know of the mercy seat. We know of the tomb where angels stood or sat either end on that morning of the resurrection. And that blood, blood being sprinkled, just as the blood of a, a lamb would have been sprinkled at the time of offering. And that blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Once again, blood, Abel's blood was shed, and it just speaks again of, of the, the sacrifice, uh, of the offering that he gave to God that was pleasing to God. And of course, Cain rebelled because he offered of his own work, of his own hands. But Abel's blood speaks, well, how much better does the blood of Jesus speak? And it says, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. It's obviously Jesus. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth at the time of the Exodus, the time of Mount Sinai, much more, Shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven? He says, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, and those things that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Okay, so this is saying that God, just as he, he brought that shaking at, at the time of Sinai, well, we're told to, just as the children of Israel were not to refuse the things that Moses had spoken to them, that the Lord had spoken through Moses, well, we're not to refuse the things that have been spoken through Jesus. It's so much more important that we obey and we follow him. And then this warning that there's going to be the shaking. Well, guess what, folks? We are right in that situation now. The Lord is doing that shaking. Once, you know, go back, you know, six months ago, the world was expecting tomorrow to be like today. 
You know, now the world knows it's not the same. The Bible has warned us of this all along. There's going to come a time where this world is going to be thrown into turmoil. We're getting to, to that place where cash is going to be cancelled. We're moving towards a new world order. You may have seen Gordon Brown the other week, last week, uh, came out and called, said that we need a new world order. I believe it was last night the president of China has put himself forward as saying he could be or should be the leader of the new one world government. The world is moving rapidly into the days the Bible speaks of. And there's a shaking. And we are in one of those elements of shaking right now with this coronavirus. The the things which can remain will stay. In other words, God is getting rid of all the, the worldly stuff. And think of this, apply this to your own life. God is causing you to reevaluate everything. What is important to you? You know, three or four weeks ago, we were doing things very differently than we are now. Our lives were very different. I was talking to, to my dad yesterday after our pastor's meeting, and we were just saying how different things are. You know, I, we, I can't remember the last time we, we put petrol in the car. You know, we, we, we don't need to do that. We're not traveling anywhere. All the things, and that was such an important thing, wasn't it? Traveling everywhere and all these things. We're having to reevaluate what's important. Well, the things that we have held, held on to are being shaken and we're being caused even as believers to reevaluate. Re this whole chapter is telling us again, think of those things that are holding you back. Think of those things that are tying you down. Reevaluate the whole thing. There's going to be a shaking and that shaking is going to come from the church first and then it's going to apply to the world. But in, in Peter, Peter says there's a time of judgment coming and that judgment will begin with the church of God. That time is going to come where there's going to be a shaking of everything that we think we, we hold on to, all the things that we, were once important. You know, all the churches that have invested, you know, tens and thousands of pounds, you know, in, in church buildings and properties and all those kind of things. And I'm not saying that they, they have no value, but suddenly they, they don't mean as much anymore. We're all in a position where we're able to fellowship, we're able to do things, you know, without the things that maybe once seemed so important to us. Well, there's the shaking, and we could apply this in so many areas. We could talk probably for the whole morning on this this particular thing, but I think you, you see where we're going. Again, verse 27, And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of those things, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Whereof, now this is the hope, whereof we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace. Wherefore, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, because just as at Mount Sinai, when God came down on top of that mountain that is burnt black, still there today in the, the deserts of Saudi Arabia, for our God is a consuming fire. God is not mocked. We are told very clearly in Scripture at the end of Galatians that whatever we sow, that we will reap. And this chapter is saying we have so much hope. We have this great inheritance. We have this example of those that have gone before us. We have this heavenly Jerusalem that we are looking forward to. All these wonderful things ahead. Let us therefore cut all those ties. Everything that holds us to this world, let us live for Jesus Christ in these days because these days are few and soon we will be with the Lord in heaven. Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity this morning. Uh, Lord, we just pray you just impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, speak to us. We pray that we would let go of those things, that we would reevaluate what we hold dear. And that, Lord, we would just give our lives to you fully, completely. And we would trust you that, Lord, we would be obedient. 
Oh, Lord, we know that there is nothing better than walking with you. So, Lord, help us to make our own path straight by not putting things in the way that cause us to stumble, that cause us to trip up. And we ask these things this morning that we may grow together in knowledge and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.